everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Directors in Animation podcast. Today I'll be speaking to a fantastic director, June Falkenstein. Hi, June. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me on your podcast, even across the pond, as they say, internationally. Internationally, yes. You're the first director uh, from across the ocean. <laughs> so I'm super excited to talk to you and to kind of get your perspective on, on this whole directing thing. <laughs> this crazy animation thing. Yeah. Um, so we always start by uh, talking about the director's, the guest director career. So the first question is if you could tell us a bit more about your direct directing path. Okay. Well, I pretty much wanted to be in animation from when I was a kid. That's that. I didn't have any other thought in my head. That's what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to be an animator originally, and that's sort of the path I was taking. But when I went to school, which was at USC Film School, um, I ended up actually creating my own films, like most <laughs> students do. And I loved the entire process of making the film and not just the animation part of it. You know, I learned a lot about all the moving parts and how to put them all together. And um, I... Although my first job in animation was as a what they called a character layout artist, which is sort of like the person that does the keyframes in animation, which is a little bit of an obsolete role now, <laughs> um, I uh, immediately jumped into a development team. This was at Warner Brothers Television Animation a long time ago. And um, we started just working on various miscellaneous projects, including... Um, developing like some ideas for shows and things like that so I was doing that very very early in my career I was probably like 23 and then um Hanna-Barbera which was still its own studio <laughs> at the time uh somebody from Hanna-Barbera called me and said they remembered my short films from the um film student screening at USC and they were like would I like to come be part of this program that they were doing for young directors, and I was like, yes, of course. So um, I ended up at Hanna-Barbera, and I tried to make a short, and a lot of other people were making shorts that ended up being these actually very well-known series now, like um, uh, Gendy was there doing Dexter's Lab, and Craig be cracking with Powerpuff Girls, etc. They were making these shorts. I tried to make one. It never quite worked so they gave me like a consolation prize of directing this um thing called <laughs> scooby-doo in arabian nights <laughs> in which i did the segment of mcgilla gorilla <laughs> so it was like 20 minutes but it was a real directing job so i was only like 24 when i started directing and it went on from there to um mostly as as most people who direct animation know a fallback position is storyboarding in order if you can't get a directing job. So I did a lot of that as well. But I, I did get some really big breaks from people at uh, Disney Studios um, when a few years after Hanna-Barbera, I was asked to um, if I wanted to do a television special for Winnie the Pooh. It was an American <laughs> television special because it was about Thanksgiving specifically. But that was fun, and I worked with a studio in Australia for that. I think it was actually Disney Australia. And soon after that, um, 
so yeah, I did the goofy segment for Mickey's Once Upon a Christmas. And I was sort of partway through doing that when they came to me and said, you know, I know you're not finished with this, but would you like to do a movie? I'm like, what? Really? Sure, I'll stop working <laughs> on that and go do the movie. And so this was what ended up being the Tigger movie. And it was for the Disney Toon Studios and not the feature animation division, but they had some pretty good success doing like a DuckTales, the mm-hmm. movie before that. And they also did a Goofy movie, which was a wonderful yes. movie. And the, so that was through that same unit. So I was like the third or fourth um, film to come out of that group, which was the Tigger movie, which I wrote the screenplay and directed. So that's pretty much the basis of how I started. Yeah. And do I remember correctly, you were the youngest director uh, to to direct a feature. I've read that somewhere. The youngest female director. Youngest female director. That's amazing. I think I think I still hold the record. <laughs> There's other people that have come now and and done like bigger movies that have made much more mm-hmm. money than my little movie. But I I was um you know 28 when I directed the Tigger movie. That's incredible. And um, we worked together on the Monster High features. So how did you uh, end it up there? <laughs> well, there was a lot of things that happened in between. <laughs> um, I After Tigger, I thought things were going to go, you know, continue in, to go well. But I, I did make some mistakes. And um, one of them was I, I got sucked into the DreamWorks universe, Jeffrey Katzenberg. I guess, was trying, at that point, this was around 2000, he was collecting directors and talent. He was trying to sort of poach them from other studios, especially Disney. So uh, he brought me over there and I was excited about, you know, DreamWorks. So I ended up going to DreamWorks features, but then nothing happened for a long time. In other words, I sat around developing ideas and nothing took off. So it was like almost two years of me just you know, trying and nothing happening. So I, I, I settled into this bad place of um, where I, I wasn't racking up any credits. And uh, th- it was an interesting uh, change for me. I eventually went back to Disney and tried to do Treasure Planet 2, which I know a lot of people still ask me about because they pulled the plug on it because halfway through production. Oh, wow. <laughs> because Treasure Planet 1 wasn't making enough money at the box office. They didn't want to continue with the sequel. So that was disappointing. And then um, I was hired by Universal Studios to direct Curious George feature. Mm-hmm. And that was a very, very tough experience for me. Um, I was working with... Universal Studios and also with Imagine Entertainment, that's Ron Howard and Brian Grazer's company. Mm-hmm. So I was thrown into sort of a little more of a high pressure, high level Hollywood system at that time, which kind of, I think that I wasn't quite prepared for, to be honest with myself. Um, I did the best I could, but there was a lot of things working against me. Mm-hmm. I did the best I could. <laughs> um, so eventually what happened was uh, I you know, was taken off the project. <laughs> but I, I did, you know, I tried. I learned a lot, mm-hmm. though, on that job. I learned a lot of lessons about Hollywood and about big, you know, studio policy. And, you know, especially at that level. 
And who would have thought such an innocent story, <laughs> monkey story, cute children's book, like Curious George, is, would be such a troublesome production, but it was. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? It's sort of, we make these entertainment uh, shows, whether it's a series or features for children. But yeah, behind closed doors, there's a lot of drama and there's a lot of stress sometimes. Definitely. Thank you so much for sharing it. I think it's so important to hear people's journeys that have, you know, have various experiences. Because I find sometimes when people talk about their careers, they kind of highlight all the all the success. <laughs> and and then I think it's really hard to learn from that. And I think all of us had this kind of moments or projects where it just, for whatever reason, it didn't go well. And I think it's important to say these things out loud and just to say it's it's not an easy path. Especially in animation development, where you can be working on something for years and then nothing happens and it's all gone. And and then people look at your credits and go, how come you didn't do anything between this year and this year? And it's like, that's not true. I was working really hard on this movie and it just ended up getting shelved. And so it looks like you haven't done anything, but yes, you have. You've been working your butt off trying to make something that didn't get finished. And that happens to a lot of people. Yes. Yeah, it, it takes years development. And also, you, you're right. I mean, on, on paper, on, in terms of CV or IMDb, yes, it, it, it looks like gaps. But in terms of kind of development as a director or as a creative, nothing is wasted. It's yeah. all kind of a big right. incubator where you gather ideas and you grow. And, and sometimes you need that time as well rather than just constantly be in production. Sure. And you always learn something from every, even if it's a failed attempt, you always learn something and you always grow. And you probably learn a lot more from the failed attempt because yeah. you, you can go back and analyze and go, or you might go, you know what? I, I was happy not to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe there was a reason. Well, well, it's been 15 years now since the whole Curious George thing. So I, I've grown a lot since then. I've learned a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, time, time gives that kind of perspective on things. Um, great. So, uh, like I mentioned before, I mean, I know you from working with you on the Monster High. Yep. Um, you were on the Mattel side. I was on the Axis and Flon side. Yep. And you worked as a supervising director on on a few of the Monster High films. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the difference between a director and a supervising director, because you've done both. Right. Well, a supervising director is mostly a television concept more than a feature. In a feature film, it's just the director, and maybe there's a second unit, etc. But, you know, and it's a different job, too, um, television than features. Um, I've done both, so... <laughs> Uh, in, in television production, which even though Monster High was feature length, it was still handled like a, a television series. It was like a television series with really long episodes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, the difference mainly between the supervising director and the directors, the directors own their own um, show, like whether it's an 11-minute show or an hour-and-a-half show, that's the director's show. The supervising director is usually in charge of the feel of the entire series of shows, like trying to set the pace so that they all have fit into the same universe and they all feel like they have the same tone, etc. 
It's, and they're not there to control everything the directors do. It's more to keep things <laughs> so they're on the same path as what other people are doing, because you may not see what another director is doing, etc. And you might have a crazy idea, and we're like, well, that doesn't feel right for the show. So that's part of what my job is, to, to keep things feeling in the same correct universe for the show, and to, I guess, set the tone at the top, like set the style for the very top of the show, and then hand it off. And, and, and also... Maybe this is more most important. The supervising director is the buffer between the directors and the executives. <laughs> this is a tough job. We don't want the directors to be um, hampered or hindered by the executives and all the things that they sometimes make <laughs> you you do. And uh, you know, I, I I always try to protect the directors from uh, all uh, all the all the things that happen on the other side and the bureaucracy. So that's another thing the supervising director does. That's a very important, yeah, because also you were close, obviously, to Mattel. So you were close to the brand people. Right. So you, you knew a lot more about the brand and what they were after because it was such an establishing um, universe, the Monster High. So that kind of leads me to the, my next question. Uh, so Monster High, before, before I joined the project, it, it was super successful, super established universe of these characters, the dolls, of course, and the kind of design. And um, I was wondering, how did you bring your own vision to such a established universe? Ah, well, one of the things that happened was, and this is part, this is when you got involved, is we, this is me and the producer, we decided we wanted to change the look of the show and make it feel a little more modern. And also, there was also a, a request from Mattel at the time to, I guess, make it more accessible to slightly younger. They wanted to um, expand the age range that could watch Monster High because many they were getting much feedback that said that they felt it was too old and it was aimed at, you know, the characters were too sexy mm. and flirty and, and they didn't like the... Um, they they didn't like the example I guess the characters were setting mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. for the youngest kids because the youngest kids really liked it and they were watching it, so Mattel actually, the brand the company requested that Monster High be adjusted so that it could feel work for a bigger age range especially on the younger side, so with that in mind we were told to sort of reboot it and um, give it like a little bit of a cuter <laughs> feeling. So that is why we moved everything to um, Flaunt Studios in Glasgow, which we really thought they did a great job, by the way. And um, part of it was to redesign the look so they were a little bit softer looking and also redesign some of their clothes and, and also maybe have them feel a little bit younger as characters. Mm -hmm. so, so those are some of the things that we changed. But it was a, a request that was... It was know. kind of, yeah, I understand your... Your involvement was to rebrand it with with a specific kind of request from Mattel, but yep. it was a quite a general, wasn't it? Brief. Yes. And with that, you have quite a lot of flexibility. Right. So we we basically just tried to make you know we we changed the way they looked. One of the things I really wanted to have happen because they were being animated at another studio where they weren't using real lighting for example they were using like it, it actually frustrated me a lot because they're like no the characters are already pre-lit as they walk around I'm like well then they don't change they just get darker or brighter that's it 
like like so that bothered me so one of the things i wanted to do was move it to an actual real 3d space the show was being filmed in kind of this sort of fake i don't know what you call it using planes instead of actual mm-hmm. three, 3d oh i see yeah so um i wanted to move it to a studio that would make it a real cg show <laughs> for real and um I thought that would improve the way it looked, which I, I, my opinion, it did. Some people, some people liked the way it looked before, and they were upset. Some fans, but um, it's tricky to please everyone. Yeah, <laughs> it is. But I, I thought that art direction wise, I thought it was more sophisticated looking, which I liked. And then character design wise, we were making them, like I said, younger, a little bit cuter, mm-hmm. which, yeah. which I also liked. Now I know not everybody, everyone has their own opinion. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. It's like we say, it's a, it's a big, it's a big brand monster high. So it, it's really tricky, especially rebranding something like that. But I agree. I think uh, Flaunt, because I, I only work with Flaunt for this specific project, but I was really impressed with the, with the whole lighting, light and comp team. They did a fantastic right. job. We also, um, we had to do a little bit of recasting as well. There was some funny things that happened, like we had um, a nice, great actress doing this character called Laguna, and she was, um, the character was Australian, the actress was not Australian, and after all these years of her doing this voice, suddenly somebody from management says, is she really Australian? And we had to say no, and they're like, you have to recast her in a real with a real Australian. So <laughs> I thought, why are you doing that now? After all these years, nobody seems to mind. But things like that we had to sort of take care of. So we actually recast a, a couple of voices um, during the process. And um, I don't, I'm not sure what else I changed it. Really, we, we sort of took, you know, it, it was a very long established brand. So I tried to take what people liked about it and sort of just remake like a, a sort of a new improved modern version I guess mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and also a, a, it was a gentler version as well so and uh, talking about uh, the voice talent um, I I was with you at the voice recording in, in in LA and I was just impressed by just the speed and kind of the quality of uh, the the lines that the actors were doing and how kind of fast paced it was. Um, so I I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit how do you prepare for voice recording and how do you work with a voice director? Um, voice recording is different depending on the situation. So obviously in feature films there ideally is no voice director there's just me working with the actors which is what it's been in the past um that's how i prefer to work i know not everybody's comfortable with that and they like having a voice director um in television there's kind of a assumption that you need a voice director which i dislike personally because <laughs> i like i feel like it's like using a translator for a language you already can speak but that being said voice directors some of them are very talented too, and they bring something maybe you haven't thought of to the direction. For Monster High specifically, this was a cast that had done it, most of the cast, except for the people we swapped out, most of the cast had done it a long, long time. So they just knew their characters inside and out, and it had already been established. So it wasn't too much that we were changing. I think we just um, modified it very, very slightly. Um, when it comes to like a new idea or a new show that hasn't been established, uh, 
there would be, a, I think, a little bit of a prep time where you sit with the actors and kind of figure out how the characters are going to sound first before we even start recording, ideally, if you have the time. <laughs> Tell, television is fast. Yeah. <laughs> so you have, to, you have to go very fast. But most, most voice actors are extremely professional and they know what they're doing and they're very, very good. So you just rely on the talent usually. <laughs> and do you ever go in, into the booth with the actors or do you usually sit outside with the, the engineers? Um, I have gone to the booth when they're child actors. Um, mm -hmm. Most of the time I sit outside just, you know, so, so I don't have to be quiet. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> if you're in the booth, you have to be really quiet while they're talking. Yeah. Uh, and, and there are times where you want to, like, turn to your friend and go, oh, that one was really good, you know, yeah. <laughs> not record on the mic. Yeah, that's true. Or that's the one, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> so so for convenience sake, I guess, I'd rather sit with the engineer, but um, <laughs> people do it both ways. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it kind of, Yeah, I guess also depends on the actor sometimes, um, kind of w how they feel comfortable um, you know, with with the with the situation, right? And um, and have you ever done voice recording where you had the animatic, or do you usually just have the script with you? Um, I don't usually have the animatic because normally, as you know, uh, we'd rather record the vocals first before um, editing, before putting them into the animatic. You in other words, hopefully, the voice actor's performance influences the storyboard artist's if we can manage to get it done before boards. Um, so I, I have not used the animatic unless there was some kind of pickup situation where we already boarded something and we're like, this is that specific action that we're trying to hit. So, yeah, yeah. So usually usually it's from script. So the actors would have gotten the script early and they would uh, read it. And then do you go through like the action with the actors? Do you read the lines of the other characters? Um, if it's me directing, then yes. Mm-hmm. Um, usually I'll read through once and then they won't, if they're adults, they won't need it again. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the way I like to direct actors is, is kind of funny. And I, I learned this actually a long time ago from Jamie Thomason, who was a Disney voice director back when I was very young. I like to give them, uh, like, I, I, I especially, it doesn't work for children, but it works for adult actors where you're not really supposed to tell them how to read a line ever, especially, you know. Yeah. Maybe for a child, but not for an adult. So I will, like, say things in their ear that are silly if I want them to laugh or that are really depressing if I want them to be sad. Or, or I, I try to say things that are, like, sideways to the actual line that evoke the feeling of what the line should I want it to sound like. It's hard to describe, but... You're trying to get them into that kind of emotional state of the line, yeah. but not talking mm -hmm. about specific of, you know, you're not, not giving them, this is how I want you to tell the line. No, and, yeah. and I'll, I'll even get into it emotionally myself. I'll, you know, if I'm trying to get them to be sadder, like, even sadder. <laughs> oh my God, it's so sad, make it sadder. You know, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I'll try to emote it from my side, even if I'm not saying the actual words, you know. I do the best I can. <laughs> yeah, to kind of get them into the situation. Yeah. It's like, your mother just died. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, like, just give them a, a, a feeling that <laughs> that explains how yeah. I want the, the, the recording. Something real that they can connect to, something right. relatable. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and what's the difference with working with kids? You said you wouldn't do that with with a kids actor. What's the kind of with the kids? Main? It's actually they don't have like you know as big of an ego about those things, obviously, because they're kids. So sometimes you have to just literally read it to them like you want them to read it. You know, just say the line and they'll repeat it. Mm-hmm. Especially if they're very little, so so they can copy it. Mm-hmm. But man, kids are getting a little more like professional these days. I. On a, a new show I'm doing, we have kids, and um, they all like came into the auditions by themselves with no parents. Wow! <laughs> they were super pro. These were like seven year olds and eight year olds. It's like amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> they have their own agent by now. Oh, probably. They know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess you don't even become an actor if you can't do that. So. You know, yeah. even at even at that age, so yeah, and 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 kids are amazing, and they know that they're doing a role or a job, so they yeah, they're very serious about it, especially you know the the ones that do really well, um, and changing kind of changing the subject slightly and kind of going a little bit more outside animation and outside the kind of direct work. I know you you uh, are a musician outside the animation industry yes. and you have many hobbies. So I'm always curious about um, how directors kind of spend their free time and how does having hobbies outside work help uh, or, you know, maybe it's not about help, but can I inspire you uh, or keep you balanced? Um, and is it important basically to have kind of various hobbies as a director? Well. It, yes, of course, it's very important. It, it's also important, especially if you have a family, to spend time with your family. Um, it, ironically, you know, we make most of us make animation for family, all for all to watch for kids, and yet, ironically, it takes us sometimes away from our families. Um, but yes, to keep myself sane, I. I I have been a musician for most of my life. I started on piano and I, for some reason, picked up the bass guitar in the 90s. I think it was influenced by like Nirvana and stuff. I wanted to play a rock instrument, but I actually never put it down. <laughs> I have been playing since like 92, bass guitar. So um, I, I'm in my friends' projects. Sometimes they're silly, <laughs> but the point is to get out and play with other people and it's nice because it's completely different from animation in that it's an immediate gratification as opposed to this sort of delay where you have you know you're waiting years before you finish your projects to see it come out so with music it's like an immediate there it is we just played it Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um i also like the i guess the team teamwork with musicians playing with other musicians like you have to all play together and (laughs) like any kind of sport you have to be coordinated and you have to listen to each other. Um, but yeah, it definitely helps me uh, get out and not just sit behind the desk and hide. It helps me get out in public and <laughs> go play dive bars. <laughs> <laughs> That's so in- interesting and kind of important also what you said about quicker gratifications. So kind of having 
hobbies that takes a lot less time to achieve. Because yeah, <laughs> it could be like you said, you could be on a project in animation for years and yep. you have to keep going and having something outside that you can do in an afternoon, in an hour, in a week, but you kind of go from A to Z in a much shorter time. It kind of gives you that boost of new energy, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, you feel, yeah, it, it does help. I know a lot of people do sports and things like that. And I guess being in a band is like a sport. I have to, I, I'm currently in my friend's bar band in which we play for literally uh, four hours. Uh, oh, that's great. Per um, gig. <laughs> so it's, wow. it's, I mean, we take little breaks, but yeah, you know, we start at 9 p.m. and end at 1 a.m. usually. At a, <laughs> uh, it, and it's really fun. And it's funny to get out in public too. And it reminds you like you're not, you're, when you're in animation, you're in this specific group of people all the time mm -hmm. and um you sometimes forget who else is who else is out there yeah that's true yeah. so i i it's nice to go to all these public locations and just people watch too while i'm playing i do a lot of that <laughs> playing in the back of the van and watching all the people acting hilarious or drunk or funny or yeah well you kind of you, you reconnect with other people it's true because Especially, yeah, if you work on the same project for many years, you, you see you see the same people. And, but also, I think in animation, because it's, it's sometimes it's a very solitary uh, job, you kind of have this tunnel vision, and whatever you're doing is the most important thing in the world ever, you know. And then you go out into the world and you kind of go, oh, you know, okay, there's other things. There's other things out there. <laughs> right. And, and that's, yeah, that's another thing I'm trying to learn, you know, it, there are more other things and other people think other things are important. Everyone thinks what they're doing is the most of course, important yeah. thing, but um, you have to put your life into perspective too. And it can't just be about work. And I know in animation though, work is more important to us than in other people's work is to them, you know, in terms of it's, you know, it's part of our spirit and our, you know, it, it takes up a lot of time in our minds, even when we're not at work, you're thinking about it. And I know a lot of other people can leave their job and go home and not think about it, but usually we can't. <laughs> especially if you're a director. Um, so anything that's like a big distraction from your mind, especially for me, like music is very, very helpful. Because <laughs> otherwise I'll just sit and think about the project and like, oh, I should have done this and this and this. Yeah. And and do you find that sometimes when you kind of stop thinking directly about the project and you go do something else that kind of helps almost like the, you know, the the thinking continues in the back of your head and you might have a new idea? Well, it's it's fine if that happens. I, the problem is that for me, it happens in the middle of the night, and then I don't get to sleep, <laughs> or I'm worried about something, or oh, did I, you know, make that executive angry? Or <laughs> and you worry about these stupid things sometimes too much. So um, to yeah. have yeah, you need to balance all that with something fun when you're not working for sure. Something just for yourself. Yep. Yeah, and no one else. Yeah. That's that's brilliant. Um, I'd like to end with one bonus question sure. <laughs> that I just thought about. <laughs> okay. Because this podcast is, I mean, it's for directors who have lots of experience, who people who are working, but it's also for people who are thinking perhaps of going into directing. Um, so I was wondering if you have just one piece of advice for people who are just starting out in directing or are kind of, you know, their ambition is mm, to okay. go into directing? Well, 
Um, one piece of advice is hard. It, it could be one piece with several subcategories. <laughs> you can <laughs> you cannot put it up however you want. Okay, well, I would start with saying animation and filmmaking. If you don't love it, if you think of it as just a job, then don't do it. <laughs> it tends to take up a lot of your extra time. You have to love it. You have to really love it. Um, for people who are thinking of going to directing specifically, do a lot of storyboarding and writing. These are very, very helpful, especially boarding. And, you know, I think it's, in my personal opinion, it's it's more helpful than other types of like illustration work or something in terms of specifically for directing. Um, you know, study everybody that came before you. <laughs> these these are things other people will say. I'm yeah, sure. yeah. No, but um, it's good to hear these things. I think. Yeah. Uh, keep watch everything that's out at least one episode or two, just so you see what's, you know, everybody's excited about right now. I guess um, you, when you're a director. You, you have to know yourself. There's there's some people that get away with directing with only like um, with a lot of help from producers and, and they're very, very right-brained and only creative thinkers. But I've found that a good director has to be a balanced person more than some other roles on the production. Like uh, I have to have enough organization ability as well as creative ability. You have to sort of be able to do both things, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. And if you find that you, you know, get frustrated with one side or the other, then maybe there's a different path you should think of. And um, I guess it can close with when I was I was talking to some students at USC for a class, and the topic, interestingly enough, drifted into this whole concept of, um, you know, do you have to be like Steven Spielberg to be happy? You know, do you have to be at the very, very top winning Oscars and Emmys and stuff? And um, I found that that's not true. And there's lots of my colleagues, like, it's not like you shouldn't have high expectations. You absolutely should. And you should go for the highest place in your career you want to be. But I think you could also be happy. You'll find places in the industry because there's so much material to do now online, etc. And you'll find something that you love to do and, and don't feel bad about yourself if you don't win awards or don't immediately get to direct or don't immediately get to do this like just find something you enjoy and it, it that's really what's going to come across is your enthusiasm for the material will always you know i think make make your make yourself happy and it, being happy doesn't mean you have to be the winner of being on top i guess it's, it's hard to <laughs> put that into the right words <laughs> i think you put it beautifully i think that's fantastic and if you get into directing and find it makes you unhappy which has happened to also some people i know then go back to something else uh, you know don't feel pressure that oh i must be a director because that's the highest thing to do mm-hmm. etc if it doesn't make you happy then why are you doing it because it, it's a demanding job it's a demanding that's position true, yeah. and you have to have a personality personality that really gravitates toward it I think that's a wonderful way to uh, to finish this um, this chat. Finding what makes you happy, June. Thank you so much. This been it's been great. It's been a pleasure to to chat with you. Thank you. It was wonderful to work with you. And it was really nice to work with you too. Yay! <laughs> I was excited, and just a quick side note: I was excited to have a female director, and I'm glad that there's a little more initiative in the industry too 
pay attention to equality, I've noticed. So yeah. I think I think we're going to see more female directors in the near future. I think so as well. I think it's uh, things are changing slowly but steadily, and I think there's a lot more female students out there, and it's yes, kind of definitely. the new generation is coming out, and they're going to show us uh, exciting things. Um, yay! Yay! <laughs> Thank you so much, June. Uh, it's Thank been you. absolutely fantastic. Thank you for for being with us. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye.